If you want to head back toward your seats and while you're getting settled in, if you've got a Bible, uh, you want to open that up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Uh, if, you're, if you're visiting, <clears throat> maybe out of town here with family over the holidays and so you're here with us this morning or maybe you're a student back from college for the weekend, you're catching us uh, in the middle of a of a long run here. We're actually at the tail end of something that we've been doing over the course of the entire year. And so uh, we're certainly very glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. Uh, hope that your Thanksgiving was was a great time. Uh, but it's you might feel like you jumped right into the middle of something, which you did, And so, but that's okay. Uh, we've been walking through the large narrative story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation over the course of 2017. And we started... Uh, in January, and we have just been working our way forward through the narrative portions of Scripture. And so this morning, uh, that lands us in uh, the third to last week. And so this week, we're doing the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Next week, uh, 1, 2, 3 John, and James. And then the week after that is Revelation. And so uh, you're catching us at the very end here, uh, but that's okay. We're going to uh, work with uh, these pastoral epistles, and we're going to do so specifically from 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible and you want to open up to there, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Uh, God, thank you for our time together this morning. God, for the opportunity to come and to worship freely and not have to do so with any fear of police breaking in and telling us that we need to disassemble or, or uh, arresting us, whatever the case might be. Lord, uh, we're thankful for the chance to gather and to worship and uh, to talk about the gospel, to be open about our faith. Lord, I pray this morning that we would come expectantly, we would take a moment to settle our hearts and be open to what it is that your spirit will do through our time together as a body, what your spirit will do as we look at your word, God, what your spirit will do as we worship. Lord, I pray that... uh, we would be humble and receptive to that, God, that we would leave here encouraged by our time together as a local body of believers, but that we would also leave here uh, convicted and, and challenged and um, with a desire to go and to live the truth of the gospel wherever it is that you have placed us. So Lord, would your spirit come and do that kind of work in our hearts here this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I want to talk about two Uh, life-shaping experiences that I had as uh, a young child. They both involve food items. Um, People know me to different degrees, and so I would describe myself as being a fairly principled individual. Like I made decisions uh, when I was very young, and just for the sake of principle, I still live by those decisions because I can't bring myself to shift them or to change them. Uh, whatever the case might be. And these are two of them. So the first one, I was like four or five years old. Uh, We were together with family. Uh, We're all sitting around a large table, my immediate family, but also some of our extended family. And my dad had a food item I had never seen before. It was a pickle. And I said, I want, can I try that? And so he gave me, you know, a sliver of a pickle and I put it into my mouth and I thought I was dying from the taste buds out. The, one of the worst sensory experiences of my entire life was five-year-old Tim with a pickle in his mouth. And from that time forward, 
uh, that has influenced all of my food decisions. Every hamburger I've ever eaten, every Chick-fil-A sandwich I ever have, every barbecue restaurant I've ever been. I not only don't want your pickle there, I also want you to keep the juice of that pickle as far away from me as is possible. Don't put the pickle on my barbecue tray because it's going to mix in my barbecue sauce and I'm going to have to throw the whole thing out, right? That is a life-shaping experience for me that influences the way I eat food. I had another one uh, around the same time. I was uh, maybe a little bit older, but both of my parents were, are tea drinkers. Uh, they drink uh, a lot of iced tea. Now, typically that iced tea is unsweetened. And so when I was really young, I had tried their regular iced tea a couple of times and I thought it was just kind of like glorified water and so why would I drink that but then one time I got some with sugar in it and it changed my life from the taste buds out I mean I thought I had been given life anew when sweet tea touched my lips for the very first time I'm pretty sure don't quote me on this but when God tells the Israelites that he's going to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey that the Hebrew words there actually say sweet tea. I'm going to take you to a land that's flowing with sweet tea. And ever since then, I have made, you know, drink decisions based on that reality. If I walk into a restaurant and they have sweet tea, why in the world would you drink anything else? I don't understand why you would want any other substance to, to enter your body other than sweet tea. That's how I function now. Those are life-shaping experiences. We've all had some of those. Yours uh, might be food-related, but we've all had some life-shaping experiences that are far more significant than food-related, where we experience a, a set of circumstances or a season of life, and that shapes us and molds us in such a way that it has an impact on us going forward always. It's fundamentally changed who we are. Well, as a staff, over the last year, as we were putting together this Bible initiative that we've done, and as we've been working our way through it, our prayer has been that God would use it to create a life-shaping experience for people within our church, but for us as a church collectively as well. That we would, as we interact with the breadth of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit would use that intentional engagement to forever influence the lives of those within this church. And so we're starting to wrap that process up. We're three weeks away from the end and maybe more so than next week or the final week. Uh, it makes sense to do a little bit of concluding today. And the reason I say that is because we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, which contains within it probably the Bible's most well-known statement about itself. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, for all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable uh, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be uh, complete, equipped for every good work. That's probably Scripture's most well-known statement about itself. And so as we look to kind of bracket our year walking through the Bible, it makes sense to do some concluding today. So we're not to diminish the next two weeks. That's certainly not the case. If anything, I hope that our time together today creates a little bit of space for us to be able to reflect on the year past and kind of what we've experienced and learned and seen in scripture from beginning to end, but also gives us some space in a couple of weeks here to process what do we do with that going forward? What has my engagement with scripture been like up to this point in my life? And what kind of commitments might I want to make going forward? And so, as is always the case, we want to catch 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 in uh, its context, in the flow of how it comes to us. And so we're going to look at all of 2 Timothy chapter 3. But before we jump into that, I want to just say a little bit about pastoral epistles in general. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, they're lumped together under the heading of what are known as pastoral epistles. They're called that because unlike the majority of the letters, the epistles in the New Testament, they're written specifically to one individual in a kind of relational, pastoral sort of way from Paul to Timothy, from Paul to Titus, rather than being addressed to a whole church. And so there are very uh, relational aspects of it. You hear Paul talking to Timothy or Paul talking to Titus as you would think of writing a letter to a close friend, that they're sharing information with each other. There's kind of mentoring type back and forth, but he also gives instructions about how to oversee churches. Timothy and Titus were left in two different cities, Timothy and Ephesus, Titus on the island of Crete, to oversee the growth of the churches there. So Paul includes instructions and encouragements and help in how it is that they should do that. How should they structure the churches? What should they watch out for? How should they lead within those contexts? And so for us, a couple thousand years later, all of those uh, items are still there. How do we structure the church? What does it look like? How is it that we should lead the church? What should we be watching out for? But then we also see not everybody's a pastor. Not everybody's a church leader. How is it that we should be interacting within a church? What as a church body, as the big C church collectively, should we be looking for or watching for? And so uh, they're incredibly useful. They're very, very practical. uh, And they contain within them some amazingly profound statements like we're going to see today. And so I'm going to start reading in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, and I'm just going to read through verse 17, which is the end of the chapter. This is what it says. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambra opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work." There's the whole of 2 Timothy 3 that leads Paul to make that statement about 
Scripture. And so we're going to work our way toward those two verses at the end of 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Paul uses that phrase, last days, throughout his epistles. It's found in numerous places. Uh, When he does so, he's not talking about revelation. When we think of last days, we think end times, the final book in the Bible, when Jesus comes back. Paul's actually referring to what we would probably more regularly call the church age. Everything from Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit arrived, all the way through when Jesus does return. So when he makes this statement that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, he's talking about his own time. He's talking about our time. He's talking about those who might live after us before Jesus comes. Those last days are the time in which history is moving itself toward its predetermined end. That began after Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit came, and it will come to a completion when Christ returns a second time. So last days is viewed through that sort of lens. We are in the last days right now. And Paul says difficulty will come. Bear in mind, he's writing this to an individual, Timothy, who's overseeing a church. And he's instructing Timothy how it is that he is supposed to function and lead that body of believers. And so he gives a strong, strong warning to avoid a particular type of person. And it's bookended, it's bracketed by two statements. At the beginning of verse 2, he describes them as lovers of self. And at the end of verse 5, or the beginning of verse 5, he says that they have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. The staggering reality about all the list of adjectives that falls in between those two statements is that they describe a person within the church who has the appearance of godliness, but is ultimately a lover of self. And Paul's strong encouragement is that we are to distance ourselves from poor examples within the church. That's what the end of verse 5 says. Avoid such people. Paul's talking about individuals inside Timothy's church body who are all of these following things, but they begin with lover of self. Matthew Henry, when he's Uh, writing his commentary about these verses, says this, Even in gospel times, there will be perilous moments, not so much on account of persecution from without as on account of corruption within. Two traitors within the garrison may do more harm than 2,000 besiegers without. Paul says these individuals have the appearance of godliness, but that is it. If you sift below the surface, there's something very different lurking there. The difficulties that arise for the church in the last days will certainly at times be external, like Sukkot was talking about in East Asia. But more than that, it will be internal. Why? Because there will be people within the church who love something more than they love God. They don't love God above all else. Instead, they're a lover of themselves. And the way you live your life is a spillover of that which you love most dearly. True godliness is a result or a product of a supreme love for God. The list that flows from verse 2 down to verse 5 is a spillover of something else. It's the spillover of 
of the life of a person who loves themselves more than God. And so we're just going to walk our way through these. Paul says, you distance yourselves from poor examples within the church. Some of these words need no real explanation. Some of them require a little bit. He says, they'll be lovers of money, proud, arrogant. They'll be abusive, which could certainly be physical, uh, but more likely has a connotation of like mental and emotional types of abuse, whereby you would use people to achieve your own aims. You would abuse. You would use people in order to boost yourself up. They'll be disobedient to parents. Young people, if you're a, if you're a young person. It's amazing to me that that gets included along with the other things in this list. I think the reason why it's amazing to me is that I became a believer when I was in high school. I was just about to turn 16 years old. I heard the gospel for the first time. I placed my faith in Christ. And at the very bottom of the list of the things that I thought I needed to be really intentional about in order to live a life that glorified Jesus would have been my obedience level to my parents. Paul says, you'll be able to distinguish whether or not a person, particularly a young person, has a love for themselves or a love for God based on their obedience to their parents. That's remarkable to me. I spent the vast majority of my high school years intentionally blowing off curfew and then blaming stoplights, right? I was supposed to be home at 10. I knew I was going to be, you know, 10 minutes late. And I was rehearsing a string of stoplights in my head that I could tell my dad were all red on the way home. You never believe it, dad. Every single one of them, right? And there were far fewer stoplights in Liberty at the time. But Paul says you will be able to tell if a young person loves themselves or is a lover of God based on their obedience to their parents. And that comes with some parameters, right? Young people, if your parents are asking you to do things, to be obedient to that which falls within the boundaries and the commands of Scripture, then those are the things that you obey. You might not love them. You might disagree with them passionately. 10 o'clock is a dumb curfew. 11 is better, and I could give you 12 reasons why, right? You might disagree But a lover of self would say, I'm just going to do my own thing. A lover of God would say, I'm going to be obedient. It's amazing to me that that one makes the list, but it does, and I think it's important. He goes on. They're ungrateful, unholy. If your chief love is for yourself and not for God and his work to save you through Jesus Christ, then the moral arc of your life is not going to bend toward holiness. It's going to bend toward an increasing need to gratify the desires of your sinful nature. A large 40,000 foot view of your life, maybe with the help of like a close friend or a mentor or something, should be able to point toward which way are you moving? Are you moving toward holiness or are you moving toward that which gratifies your sinful nature? Paul says a lover of self is moving toward that which gratifies their sinful nature. They're unholy. A lover of God, though not perfect, not sinless, not going to get it right every single time, but the arc of their life is moving toward holiness. He says they're heartless, unappeasable. They're just never satisfied. 
That's because the appetite of sin is never satisfied. That's in opposition to a heart that rests in Christ and which finds its ultimate contentment and satisfaction in the truth of who Jesus is. They're unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. Without a supreme love for God, there is not going to be a supreme love for the things of God, which are good. Instead, there would be a love for the things which are contrary to God's nature. They're treacherous, reckless, he says. They're literally driving themselves toward their own destruction. Their need to fulfill their own sinful flesh drives them in a way that's moving toward their own destruction. They're swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than God. They have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. End of verse 5. Avoid such people. Paul's not issuing a command to Timothy to cast off those who are lost and in need of the gospel. He's giving Timothy a warning to not tie himself or anchor himself to posers within the church, to hypocrites. To borrow uh, some of the main idea from T.A.'s message last week, if there is no Christ in them and them in Christ, don't hitch your wagon to them. It's a discipleship relationship that gives birth to this letter, if you will. And now Paul has moved on. He's left Timothy at Ephesus. There's a void in that relationship now. They're not in direct contact. And Paul says, watch out for filling that void with someone who has the appearance of godliness, but is actually a lover of themselves. Don't tie yourself to them. We know, and Paul makes it clear throughout his writing, the Bible makes it clear from beginning to end, that there's unending mercy and grace available to any who know and acknowledge that their life is a mess, that they have sin, and that they need a Savior. But for those who refuse to do so, or for those who even go so far as to play the hypocrite, there is only rebuke. And there will only be rebuke at the end, when they stand in judgment. Incidentally, What is the answer for both of those types of people, whether they are lost or whether they are hypocrite, they play the role, they have the appearance of godliness, but they actually are a lover of themselves? The answer to both of those is the gospel. That's part of the reason why whoever stands up here week in and week out is going to preach the truth of Jesus Christ sent on our behalf, the grace of God through the work of Christ on the cross. Because we believe that there are many who sit here every Sunday morning and they are walking in a relationship with God. They've placed their faith in Jesus Christ and they're doing the best they can to be submissive and humble and receptive to Him and to live a life that glorifies Him. And we believe the most helpful way we can encourage people in doing that is by pressing the gospel deeper and deeper into their lives, by pushing the truth of the gospel into our hearts further and further and further. We also know that there are people who come here every Sunday and they're brought with a family member or they come with someone and they would maybe sit here and openly say, I don't even think God exists. I'm just here because I have to be. We believe the answer for that person is the gospel. We also know that there are some who sit in here every Sunday and they have played church for a long time. They do all that they can to have the appearance of godliness But when they read something like that list 
In 2 Timothy 3, though they may not ever vocalize it, in their heart there is a stinging sensation because they know that they've been described. That ultimately what defines them is not a love of God, but a love of self. And we believe the answer for those individuals is the gospel. Timothy says in the la- or Paul says in the last days, Timothy, there are going to be perilous times. There's going to be difficulty for the church, and much of it's going to come from inside. And it's going to come from people that look like this. And he gives this incredible list. He goes on in verses uh, 6 through 9, and he says that these people are sly. They prey on individuals within the church. They oppose the truth, but that that will become plain for everyone, and everybody will see it. And then he goes from verse 10 through verse 11, and he gives a contrasting list to the one that he just gave. And he relates it to himself. You have seen my long list. But that can be extrapolated to others within the church. This is the type of example that we should follow, that we should align ourselves with good examples within the church. The issue isn't to be like Paul. The issue is to be like Jesus. And that requires finding examples and influences within the church who point you in that direction. So what should I look for? Well, he gives a list. He says, you've followed my teaching. You should look at someone's doctrine. Is it sound? Do they believe true things about who God is and who they are and who Jesus is and the need for salvation? It doesn't mean that everybody has to be a teacher, that they would stand here in this spot and teach. They don't have to be the leader of your small group in order to be an example worth following. But they need to have doctrine that is sound. They understand the truths of the Bible. They understand the truths of the gospel. He goes on and he says, my conduct. So the next question is, does their lifestyle align with that doctrine? George Whitfield, in a sermon over this text, said, Paul did not pull down with his living what he built up with his preaching. That should be the aim of every person who follows Christ, that we don't pull down with our living what we build up with the truth of the gospel. A good example or someone to follow, a target to shoot for, is a life that does the same, where their manner of living is at peace with their doctrine. He says, you know, my aim, their direction. Are they headed where Jesus is going? Do they do the things that Jesus would do? Are they engaged in the things that God cares about? Are they wanting to expand the gospel? They don't necessarily have to be a missionary who goes overseas, though they certainly could be. It could be a person who just has an incredible heart for the lost people that exist around them. That kind of aim. Is that the aim of their life? To share the message of the gospel with those who need to hear it. My faith. Is there a faith-filled quality about that person? Patience. He says, you know my love, you've seen my love. Is that what marks an individual's interactions with the people around them? You've seen my steadfastness. A good example is a person who is graciously immovable on issues of truth. Not, don't have to be bombastic, don't have to be belligerent, but graciously immovable on matters of truth. They're steadfast. He talks about his endurance in the face of persecution. When living a life of loving and following Jesus leads to scorn from the world and from those around us, does that person humbly endure? And then at the end of verse 11, he says, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. There's a, a reliance, not a self-reliance, but a reliance and a trust in the Lord to ultimately deliver and rescue. And he says, that is a good example. I'll lay them both out for you. And it leads to the logical question, How can I be sure of a person that I'm looking at 
Do I just use my best judgment? I, I look at kind of the scope of their life and I say, seems good. Or I look at the scope of their life and I say, seems like a bad example. Well, no. God's given us scripture that defines it for us has defined the difference between loving self and loving God, has defined the difference between pride and humility. And so he gives Timothy some final encouragements from verses 12 all the way down through 17. In 14, he says, Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. Continue. It's not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong pursuit. When we were working on kind of trying to lay out this Bible initiative and we were talking about how we just really wanted to spend a year alongside the church walking through scripture and the various pieces of that, we had a working title for a while because we didn't know what to call it. We didn't even really know what it was going to look like. We were just kind of, we would call it a year in the Bible. And at one point in a staff meeting, Jim Stites, one of our student pastors, said, can I just say that I hate that title? I was like, I mean, yes, that's not what we're, I don't think anybody's like married to that. It's just, we got to be able to name the thing so we can talk about it. But why do you hate it? And he said, because it makes it seem like you spend one year here and then you move on. Oh, I, I, I spent some time reading the Bible, check, and now you move on. And he was right. I mean, that's the exact opposite of what we desire. And it's the exact opposite of what scripture lays out, what Paul would have desired for Timothy. You continue in what you have firmly believed or what has been taught to him from his childhood. And then he says that what we're dealing with are sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation. What we are to know as Christians are the holy scriptures that come from a holy God, were delivered by holy writers through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, contains holy precepts that can bring us to the Holy Son of God where salvation is found. That's what scripture is. That is its purpose. And sure, there are other impacts and other effects, but at its core, this is something we've said over and over this year. The Bible is a book that tells the story of the glory of God in redeeming humanity from their sin. It's about God and his glory and sending his son to save his people. That's what scripture is. And above all else, we come to it expectantly, knowing that it makes us wise for salvation and for all of life, following salvation. And it's at that point that Paul makes his statement in verses 16 and 17. To hold that up, he reminds Timothy that all of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, and for equipping us for every good work. That's how he arrives at that statement. That you would not only be able to tell the difference between a lover of self and a lover of God, but that you would be able to know for certain what those two things look like and how to address them. Because scripture is clear and it is infinitely useful. There are some other impacts, and he lays those out. It's profitable for teaching. That's why whoever stands up here on any given Sunday morning is going to teach from Scripture. The Bible, God's Word, is what creates authority within the church, is what creates 
teaching content for a church, not just the thoughts of a pastor or the thoughts of a teacher who happened to stand up on a Sunday morning. He says it's valuable for reproof and for correction. The individual who's posing, the individual who's playing the hypocrite, what they need is not a tongue lashing from someone else within the church. What they need is their heart softened to the truth of the message of the Bible, which is that they can be saved by faith through grace. That's what they need. Reproof and correction for training in righteousness. How do we live the kind of life that Paul lived? One where we could confidently say, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, thankfully, we don't have to fumble along and hope that we just stumble into it. It's been given to us. It's laid out in Scripture. First and foremost, it's given to us in the person of Jesus Christ, in the flesh. And then, now we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Perfect examples of what it looks like to live righteously, laid out for us in the pages of Scripture. And then last but not least, it equips us for every good work. How do you do the work of gospel-honoring effort in a broken world? Scripture prepares us for that. There's an endless amount of really good things that believers could be doing, motivated by the gospel, for the glory of God. And Scripture equips us to do those. The operative word here, though, and what's really important for our culture and for the church and the world today is the word all. All of it. Not some of Scripture. Not the 95% of it that I like. Not the pieces that I want to cherry pick or choose to pay attention to. All Scripture is God-breathed and infinitely useful. You uphold, Paul says to Timothy, the entire book. The whole thing. Beginning to end. And the encouragement would be the same for us today. Some uh, individuals would fall into uh, one of two camps. There are some outside of the church who would want to strip the Bible of its power. There are many within the church, and I think often, if we're honest and, and reflective with ourselves, most of us would say that we fall into this camp every once in a while within the church who would strip the Bible of its teaching because it's uncomfortable or difficult or it doesn't align with something that we find personally agreeable. And so we operate with Scripture in a little bit of a different way than what Paul has encouraged Timothy to do. We sit down and we read Scripture and maybe we're reading in one of the Gospels and we hear Jesus talking about how the, it's the inside of the dish that makes something clean, not the outside. So it's not just my behavior, but it's my attitude. And we think, well, I just want to modify the behaviors. I don't want to worry about this heart stuff. That's way more difficult. And so maybe we don't physically do it, but what we do in our mind is we remove that thing from Scripture. It's just easier not to have to worry about it. We see in one of the epistles, maybe James, what the Bible has to say about the way that we talk. And we think to ourselves, I mean, I have a really hard time with words. Sometimes I use strong ones when I shouldn't. I don't want to have to pay attention to that. We see what the Bible has to say all throughout, right from beginning in Genesis and working its way through about sexual ethic. We don't like those, so we get rid of it. We see what the Bible has to say about the way we spend our money we think, I don't feel like anybody should tell me how I engage with my income. So we rip it out. 
there are those outside of the church who would want to remove the Bible of its power, like I said. And so we're coming up on Christmas and the virgin birth. And that seems like totally impossible and crazy to them. And so they like the idea of Jesus as a good teacher, but as possibly being divine, no way. So they get rid of things like the virgin birth. They get rid of his miracles. They want to remove the fact that he resurrected. They certainly don't want to think about the fact that he might be coming again and that that might have some sort of impact on their life. And so what you do is you remove the Bible of its power in the gospel. You remove the Bible of its teaching in the gospel. And what you've got left is maybe a book that's a decently historical account of the Middle East, but can do no more. In removing the Bible of its power or its teaching, you strip the Bible of the gospel. Paul's instruction to Timothy is that you uphold the entire book, beginning to end, because all of it is profitable. All of it is infinitely useful. It's all about Christ. Our deepest, most foundational desire over the course of the years that we as a congregation would see afresh or see for the very first time that the Bible from beginning to end is about Jesus. It is about the gospel. The Old Testament anticipates him. The gospels manifest him. The book of Acts is the story of the early church proclaiming him. The epistles explain what it is to live in light of him. And the book of Revelation foretells his coming again. And that that vision, that view would be a life-shifting and shaping experience. Maybe for the first time, or maybe for the hundredth time in your life. Paul gives Timothy an encouragement. He says, you stick to the book, not the parts of it that you find personally agreeable, not the things that you think are intellectually simple to square with. You stick with the whole thing, beginning to end. All of scripture. That's how you'll know how to run your church. That's how you'll know who's a lover of self and who's a lover of God. That's how you'll know what message to share with them. As your pastor, as your staff here at this church, long after this year is over and and long after you've maybe gone on in life, you've moved or you're attending church in a different place for, for whatever reason, our encouragement is always going to be the same. Stick to the book. Not because it's the book that saves you, but it's because the book that points you to that which does. Not because it's the book that's going to ultimately transform you, but it's because the book points you to that which does. In his own writings in a devotional book, John Wesley wrote this, at any price, give me the book of God. Let me be a man of one book. In the words of John Piper from the video that we showed at the very beginning of the year, he just over and over with awe and reverence, he kept saying, God wrote a book. And if the God of the universe saw it important enough to include, then we had better believe it important enough to live in light of for all of our days that we would just run to the Bible, cling to the Bible, study it, pray it, live in it, live it out, delight in it. All of Scripture is God-breathed. Our prayer, what we hope 
happens from this point forward is that we're going to continue to operate as a church on top of the foundation that has been laid for the last 32 years, which is that we're not going to swerve from the words of Scripture, but we pray that as individuals within the church, each of us looks for what does it look like for me personally to take a step forward in my engagement with Scripture. And so we want, you know, I'm making an ask, which is reflect, be intentional. Make some time to think about that. What has your engagement looked like in the past? What could it look like going forward? We want to create a little bit of space for that now. So I'm going to invite the worship team up, and we're going to sing a few songs. And uh, as we glorify God together in song, make some space to personally, individually reflect on what does it look like for me to cling to that going forward? What should my engagement look like? What did I learn over the past year? How am I living that out? We need to be asking ourselves those questions regularly. And so I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll spend some time in worship and reflection together.